When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. Hello, I'm Gemma and welcome to another episode of Good Influence. This is the podcast where each week you and I meet a guest who will help us pay attention to something we should know about as well as answer some of your questions. This episode features discussion of suicidal thoughts and behaviours. Please listen with care and put your mental health first. We'll be linking to some support resources in the show notes, so please do use them if you need to. This week, we're talking about suicide and prevention, why we should face our fear of talking about suicide, how researchers seek to widen our understanding, and how we can look to prevent suicide deaths. So joining me this week is Rory O'Connor. Rory is a professor of health psychology, director of the Suicidal Behaviour Research Lab at the University of Glasgow and head of the Mental Health and Wellbeing Group there. He's a president of the International Association for Suicide Prevention, a fellow of the Royal Society of Edinburgh and sits on the Science Council for the charity MQ Mental Health Research, as well as many, many other accolades and board memberships I could list all day. Suffice it to say, Rory is a highly respected and highly experienced voice in the field of suicide research. You are really valued. The world is a better place for you in it. And that the pain that you're experiencing is not permanent. Suicide is not the solution. And and please hold on and reach out for help. The first thing I kind of want to address right at the beginning is I'm really nervous about recording this episode. And the nerves mostly come from because it's such a sensitive topic. And I think the fear comes from the fear of saying something wrong that's going to be harmful. But I also think that is kind of the main reason that I wanted to do this episode because it's one of those topics where the fear of talking about it I don't think is probably actually helpful to the subject. That I, you obviously spend a, a great, great lot of your time talking about um, about suicide and about suicide prevention. Yeah, I think no, I think that's a really good place to start. And first of all, thanks, Gemma, for inviting me on. I'm really looking forward to our conversation. But I think I think you've just highlighted really a big challenge we still have in the field, which is because it is such a, a difficult subject to talk about, um, that and we and we try and understand what is it that prevents people talking about suicide. Mm-hmm. And part of it is fear. And I think that fear comes from many different places, as you say, one of those places of fear is yet as you've just suggested that um you don't want to say the wrong thing and indeed we know from lots of work that people do there are some words that people struggle with us using in the field so one of them is talking about committing suicide even as a term and 
and, and that's a word, a verb I try to not use now, mainly because it harks back to a time when suicide was illegal. Mm -hmm. And so personally, I mean, I just try and talk about people dying by suicide. But usually I, I'm trying, I would never, I would never tell anybody else how they should talk about suicide, especially if they're bereaved mm -hmm. by suicide or have been suicidal themselves. For me, that, that advice on some of the terminology is more for people discussing it in the media or in other public fora yeah. where I know I've come across so many people who do find it, do find it really challenging to hear their loved one's, loved one's death described as, as committing suicide. So sure. I think that, but beyond that, I think for me, the conversations are so, so important and the work I've been doing over the last 25 years, I've done a lot of public engagement work and it's really trying to get the message out there that it's okay to talk about suicide because there's research which shows that even just asking somebody whether they're suicidal, asking that question directly can really be the start of a life-saving conversation mm. which could get them some of the help that they need. So although I totally get or totally understand the fear and it's, and, and it's understandable, I think these conversations are so important because my advice would be um, of all the years I've been doing this work is that if you ask questions around suicide or mental health in a way which is compassionate, which is non-judgmental, which is just common humanity, you're not going to say the wrong thing. And in my experience of speaking to low, I mean, countless people who've been suicidal or bereaved, the challenge they often have is there's so much stigma still around if you're suicidal yourself and somebody asks you, there's often you feel really shameful mm. or a sense of shame that that you are you are suicidal or or nobody's ever asked you that question before and the sense of relief that that opens up this conversation because i think often people who become suicidal that maybe they've had a difficult childhood and that maybe their feelings or emotions haven't been validated or recognized so you just been asking that question so can just really have a sense of feel that individual feels heard. And that's why my message I always say is, please always ask that question. Always try and raise the discussion around mental health or suicide. Of course, you do it in a way which, as I said already, is compassionate and non-judgmental. And only through having these conversations will we get more comfortable with having them. Mm -hmm. And so when I think about the conversations I've been having over the years, they do get easier. And obviously, because I've had lots, lots more experience of doing it. I mean, yeah, as you've kind of said before, you've got a lot of experience in this field. You've been working in suicide research for, I think, 25 years, you said. How did you get into that field? Kind of what's led you to doing all of this work? So it's funny. Well, not funny, but it's um, more through serendipity or by chance. So Many moons ago in the 1990s, um, when I did, a, I did a psychology undergraduate degree in, at Queen's University in Belfast, and I'm Irish, just important to be up front. I, uh, Got it. Important part of my identity is my Irishness. And, but so I did, I did work on depression there in my, as an undergrad, and actually mm -hmm. I planned to do a PhD on depression. And then it just so happened that sometimes things happen the summer, I think it was, of 1994, um, I got this telephone call from the person who would turn out to be my PhD supervisor, and he said there's this opportunity or for funding on looking at um, suicide. So in that sense, it was really fortuitous. So that's what brought me along that journey. And so although at that stage, 
I'd never been directly affected by suicide. Then this, then the sad reality in between has been two really important people in my life have lost their struggle to live. One was that person, Noel, who um, brought me in the field, my PhD supervisor. Mm. Uh, he, he took his own life in 2011. And before that, in 2008, one of my closest friends, who we did our PhDs together in Belfast, she took her own life. And so although... I was always I was always really passionate about mental health, even from a young as a young kid. I remember being really fascinated by psychology and mental health more generally. Mm. Uh, then, I, I suppose with my own personal experiences, it's really brought home to me the challenge of working in this field in terms of suicide and suicide prevention. How it's really difficult to prevent sort of individual deaths by suicide, and but also it's just give me that sort of an added impetus to really every day I, I mean almost every day for the last 25 years or more I think it is now mm. I've been trying to understand suicide better and maybe do whatever we can to prevent it and, and yeah so it's yeah so I never thought when I was 21 mm. um when I started this work that whatever now I'm now 48 um so it actually it's more than 25 years so <laughs> that's that that's what I would spend my life doing, but it's incredibly rewarding and incredibly humbling to do the work and people's like people share their stories with me and my research team. And it's just amazing. Amazing. Um, it's difficult, but amazing. Yeah. I mean, I'm really sorry to hear about those personal losses that you've experienced. And I think a lot of people listening will also have those personal connections to the topic. And, you know, that's why I want to do this as sensitively as possible. But Gemma, just, just on that one, just on that, um, like I, I totally agree that when we think about the number of people affected by suicide, it's, it's really worth taking a second to think about the scale of the impact of suicide. And so, mm. so you, when I started out in the field of suicide research and prevention, we used to think that for every person who died by suicide, there was maybe six people potentially affected by each of those deaths. But then there was a recent study in the, in the United States published in just before the pandemic, well, no, 2018, and, and what that showed is that on average, there's about 135 people will in some way have some connections with each of those deaths. Mm. And if you think about that, then and think about people listening to this podcast, the chances are we'll all know somebody either directly or indirectly. Now, yeah. And I, I did the calculation recently, and it was that we think there's about 703,000 people who lose or struggle to live every year somewhere in the globe or across the globe. And if you do that multiplication then between 135 times 703,000, that's like 90, yeah. over 90, what, 95 million people potentially affected. Now, most of those people will not be bereaved in the traditional sense. But mm. you ne- so one of the things I've learned over the years is you can never predict the impact of a death on in yeah. terms of like how close the person is. So mm-hmm. yeah, of course, family members and close friends will be affected. But colleagues or more distant friends can also be really adversely affected because what each death can do is resonate with you as an individual in the sense that maybe you've been having suicidal thoughts. Maybe you've known somebody has attempted suicide or died by suicide in another context. So then these other deaths really bring home to all of us our own mortality and I mean our own fragilities and vulnerabilities and certainly when Claire died, I mean, that really brought home to me my own personal vulnerabilities, my own personal fragilities. And mm. and I think that's why when we think about having conversations like this and a podcast like this, reaching 
people, in my case, who don't read my academic papers, it's so, so important. Yeah. I mean, so talking about the academic papers and kind of research that you do. So when we talk about suicide research, what is the kind of, I mean, I'm, I'm sure there are many things, but what kind of areas are you and your teams looking at? What are we trying to understand? What do we not understand yet? Kind of where is that research going? So the work that we do, because it's obviously, to understand suicide is so complex. So the first starting point is that there's no single reason why an individual dies by suicide. There's no single risk factor. And the work that we try to do using lots of different methods, and I'll talk about some of them in a second, is trying to understand. So for me, it's all about trying to understand what it feels like to be suicidal. And then lots of people are suicidal, but thankfully, most people don't act on their thoughts of suicide, don't mm-hmm. engage in a suicidal act. So for me, it's about understanding what makes somebody suicidal and then what is it that makes people more, more likely to, I describe it as crossing the precipice from suicidal thoughts to suicidal acts. And then if we can understand both of those, mm-hmm. hopefully we can have better interventions and prevention strategies and so on. So the work that we do to try and address those questions is we do lots of different sorts of work. We do large scale surveys with both clinical and non-clinical populations, so general population studies, which are trying to understand the scale of suicidal thoughts and other risk factors. We also do like experimental based work. So for example, we do a lot of work on what happens if we, so in some of our studies, we may, we might look at how um, people with different different suicidal histories respond to stress mm-hmm. or respond to a low mood. So we can, sounds a bit odd, but we can induce a, a, a low mood, negative mood briefly in the laboratory and then look at, say, for example, how people's psychological factors change so the way they think about the future Hmm. um or the way they um we do a lot of work on what's known as physical pain sensitivity so we've got this this idea that people who who attempt suicide may have a higher physical pain capacity so they can withstand higher levels, levels of physical pain which is often required to carry out a suicidal act so that's an example of some of the experimental based work or or we do we look at how the cortisol system, which is like the stress response system works. Because mm. we, we know now that people who are suicidal are um, when they encounter a stressful situation. So when we, any of us encounter a, stress, a stressful situation, it should activate our fight or flight response. And that fight or flight response is, is driven by, in part, this cortisol. So that the stress, one of the stress hormones. So we need cortisol to be released by the body because that helps us then either decide how am I going to defend myself or how am I going to flee this situation? And it's also linked to, we think, to problem solving, to emotion regulation and to decision making. And so we've shown in some of our work, um, and again, this is often done in collaboration with, I have an identical twin brother, Daryl, who's a professor of psychology at Leeds University, and he's a stress researcher. And we, so basically mm. we're able to show that, that the stress system is what we technically describe as dysregulated or just not working as well on people are suicidal so we do that sort of work and we also then do clinical based studies with so we do a lot of our work in hospitals and we um we work with people often within hours of a suicide attempt who maybe have gone through the emergency department and and we do different sorts of work some of that is we might try and assess a range of sort of psychological and clinical risk factors to see can we better understand who's more at risk maybe to attempt suicide in the future or sadly at risk of dying by suicide. 
And then we also do intervention-based stuff. So mm-hmm. in some of our clinical, recent clinical studies, we, we, we work with people in crisis to try and do whatever we can then to reduce the likelihood that they'll attempt suicide again in the future or sadly die by suicide. So as you can see, there's lots of different stuff going on. But, yeah. And I suppose the last thing I'll just say on the types of work um, is that so to, to all of it's usually guided by this sort of model of suicide that I've developed so a few years ago, it's a bit of a mouthful, but I, I published this sort of psychological model called the Integrated Motivational Volitional Model of Suicide, which is like the easier to say the IMV model. So the IMV model, but really mm-hmm. what was my attempt to do was to understand why suicidal thoughts emerge in some people and not in others, and then why it is that some people act on their thoughts. Some people cross that precipice, as I touched on already. And really at the heart of the model, though, is this idea that suicide is not usually about people wanting to die, is that they're wanting unbearable pain to end. Mm. And they feel trapped by that unbearable pain. And that unbearable pain, that sense of entrapment could be driven by feelings of being defeated or humiliated. And that could be triggered by feelings of loss or rejection or shame. But for too many people, like for almost 6,000 people in the UK every year, that pain becomes so overwhelming that they feel trapped by that pain and that they see suicide as the only option for them, the only way of ending that pain. So all that stuff I've just described previously Mm. is trying to unpackage or unpick our understanding of what leads to that sense of entrapment. And then the bit then is part of the model, this IMV model is helping us understand. I I talk about eight specific factors which we think are important and make it more likely that people who have suicidal thoughts will will carry out those suicidal thoughts and act on them and either by attempting suicide or sadly dying by suicide. So it was a bit of a sort of whirlwind tour, Gemma. Apologies for that. Yeah, no, not. I mean, please don't apologize. This is the thing. It's obviously it's a lot of study and a lot of research, but it's also a very complex issue it's not the kind of thing that you're going to be able to boil down and say you know that's the only reason and that's the only thing to do about it sort of thing but I think you know it's important to I I enjoy learning about how this actually works with the people Mm -hmm. who are doing the work in this field yeah so your book if we look at that is kind of looks at the two areas of why people die by suicide and then what we can do to prevent it so I mean Obviously, you've written a whole book about it. I'm not expecting you to read that to us right now. But when we look at prevention, what are the kind of areas that you're looking at in that respect? And what are the maybe more practical things Mm -hmm. that we're then looking to actually prevent someone dying? So my book, When It's Darkest, called When It's Darkest, Why People Die by Suicide and What We Can Do to Prevent It, was my attempt at trying to basically synthesize, bring together my experiences both personal experiences of my own loss to suicide, as well as uh, my own mental health challenges, as well as the countless people I've met on my journey. People have been suicidal, those who've lost loved ones to suicide, suicide note analysis. But bring all that together, all those different voices together with the research evidence to, to do those two things. One is to understand and then to try and intervene and prevent. Now, before I go into sort of what's best in terms of prevention stuff, the, I think one of the things I've really tried to do with the book is open the conversation up. So the book's written for anybody with an interest mm-hmm. in understanding suicide and 
and that could be any member of the public, a young person, not so young person, a person with lived experience, a clinician, anybody at all, somebody bereaved by suicide. And actually, it was a really scary experience writing the book because I, what I because I, mean, I put a lot, I put a lot of myself into it. I, I, I not meant. I didn't want to write a, another textbook on suicide. There's too many of those. Mm. And just in a way of trying to reach out to others. Um, so it was really, really frightening an experience because I had no idea how it would be received. And there's mm. stuff in the book. I remember the night before the book was published going, I had this sort of really panic going because all these things, I, all these self-disclosures about myself, my own experiences, it's going, my, my God, once tomorrow morning when publication day happened last year, they're all out there and I can't, it's yeah. like the genie's out of the bottle. So, but, but the reason, part of the reason we're doing that and the reason we're raising it here is because I think we all have to lean into our own sort of fears and anxieties and, and that's how we'll tackle suicide risk in all of us or mental health challenges in all of us. And, I, and in the book, trying to bring together these, my own personal experiences with the evidence, with also trying to tackle the myths around suicide was to hopefully equip all of us with a recognition that suicide, A, can affect any of us, right? Any one of us, none of us is immune. There's no vaccine against suicide and there's no vaccine against us being bereaved by suicide. And and the only way forward is to have these conversations so that people, as part of it, is so we can all um, really move forward in discussing um, mental health better, but in a way which is safe. And I've tried to do it in a way which is safe, but it's personal and compassionate. And and so I think it's really important that we tackle those myths. So for example, one of the myths I talk about in the book is asking somebody whether they're suicidal will plant the idea in their head. And mm-hmm. and that is a big fear lots of people still have is, my God, if I ask somebody whether they're suicidal and, oh, what happens? That'll make them, that'll make them take their own life. There's absolutely no evidence for that, that because we mm-hmm. know that asking that question, I think as I said already, is the beginning potential of a life-saving conversation. And like another myth in the book is, I talk about the, so one of the fears that many of us have, and sadly I've encountered this as well, is that when somebody's in the midst of a depressive episode, say, and, and, and we know that although the relationship between mental health problems and suicide is complicated, um, and most people, it's really important to highlight, most people, for example, who are treated for depression will never, ever die by suicide, will never, ever attempt suicide. It's about mm-hmm. 4% of people. But 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 again, one of the myths is that, oh, that, oh, the reason people kill themselves is because they've got a mental health problem or mental illness. Yeah, that's part of the context in which suicide happens, but it's not the reason. And that's why mm. this point I made earlier about suicide, not about wanting to die, it's about wanting unbearable pain to end. And if we all can start thinking about it along those lines, thinking about it as this thing that any one of us can experience, this pain, we all experience different sorts of pain, physical pain, emotional pain. And emotional pain is no different from physical pain in the sense that there's only a, there's a limit. There's a limit to the amount of physical pain we can withstand. In the same way, there's a, lot, there's a limit to the amount of emotional pain. And so what I've tried to do in the book is convey what that pain feels like and dispel, because part of the myths are, and, to, uh, and part of the reasons why people are frightened, going back to the very, very start of the podcast, is mm. because we think suicide is this thing that happens, like it's this abnormal thing which happens to other people. And then that sense of, oh, there are people, I remember as a kid, 
I remember as a child thinking that people who had mental health problems were different from me and that they were like qualitatively different from me. And it was this yeah. thing that happened over there, which of course is not, it can, it can and does affect any of us. And so one of the things that I'm trying to do with the book is trying to have that people's understanding that what makes people suicidal is stuff that happens every one of us every single day. But for some, there's that perfect storm of factors that comes together. Some people might be linked to early life trauma. We've done a lot of work looking at their link between trauma and suicide risk. And, or it could be linked to unemployment or body image problems or issues to do with um, struggling with your own mental illness or whatever, social disadvantage, a whole range of factors. And I know I'm sort of getting into a rant here about on a sort of soapbox, but part of it is to really try and the, the, having the, the, that challenge all these myths around suicide. And sorry, the myth I was going to highlight was when I got distracted by the sort of mental illness, mental health problems issues. Yeah, so suicide, um, one of the myths is that, um, or one of the things we need to be aware of, is if somebody is in the midst of a depressive episode, say, um, and there's no explanation for their mood lifting and they seem fine, that is sort of warning signs, alarm bells, because often we think what happens is that if somebody is in the mood in the midst of a depressive episode, and I remember, because remember, suicide is the ultimate form of solving a problem. It's your most ultimate problem solving, like usually for, social, for some social problem. And that in the midst of that depressive episode, the person goes, actually, I found my solution. It's suicide. Mm. And then you're, the weight lifts because you found the solution to your problem. And then the reason that's a concern is then because as your mood lifts, you actually then maybe have the cognitive capacity and energy to plan the suicidal act and then carry it out. So what I've tried to do in the book is then alert people to some of these sorts of signs and symptoms. Mm -hmm. And then also really then in terms of the, going back to your question then about the prevention is, so the book takes us through this journey of looking at myths, looking at um, what it feels like to be suicidal and really drawing on people's experiences. But then we move into the interventions. And we know that if we just think about sort of psychological interventions, mm. we know that there's that psychological treatments work in reducing the likelihood of people will attempt suicide. So we know that they are like things like cognitive behavioral therapy, things like dialectical behavioral therapy. We know those are two psychological treatments which are helpful. But then the challenge is they're only helpful for some people. And then the other issue is not everyone can access those treatments. Yeah. So there's something about access to treatment is one thing. Anyway, I sorry, I, I've just been ranting, um, Gemma. So no, no, you really haven't. <laughs> it's, this is the thing when you try, we're obviously trying to do a, a limited time podcast episode and try and get everything in. But this is this is good. This is what what I want to get in. I mean, I suppose what I also want to ask, you know, if it's something you are able to answer, I know that there will be people who will listen and be thinking, okay in that situation where there's someone I care about and I think that they are at risk of dying by suicide, what do I do in that situation? Well, in that situation, I would, I would ask them directly whether they're thinking of, end, having, of ending their life or having thoughts of suicide. Be direct. Now, some people start that conversation off, off by asking, are you okay? And, 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 and I think that's a really, that's a good way to start it. But then be asked, asked directly. Each of our biggest fear is when I ask that question, mm. the answer comes back as yes. 
And if, so if somebody responds and says yes, and I talk a lot about it, I provide tips about how you do this in the book, is it, so if somebody responds yes, well, part of it is you're trying to validate, hear what they're, um, what they're saying and say, that, must, that sounds awful. So you're trying to validate and, and acknowledge what they're saying. Don't try and mm. minimize it. Um, don't try and explain it. It's not your, uh, your, you don't have to solve their problems, fix it. You're just there to hold them and have a conversation and then try and encourage them to seek help. Because obviously most people, they ask, this, ask that question, if you're a friend or a colleague, you're not a mental health professional. And so it's opening sure. the conversation up and then hopefully encouraging them to um, seek help. Now, if somebody is at imminent risk of, if you think they're going to attempt suicide imminently within the next couple of hours, of course, always go with try to, the emergency services is obviously the final point of call, but try and encourage them to speak to the GP, their GP or phone their GP with them or as i say all else fails definitely contact the emergency services now the other thing again i, I described this in the book is you can also help them think about how they can keep themselves safe because one of the things that we know works now is it a thing called a safety plan and a safety plan is just a way in which you help somebody think about um what are the sort of warning signs that a crisis mm-hmm. might be escalating so, and then just ask me to think through that. So you're, so what the, a city plan tries to get somebody to do is to plan ahead for maybe a next crisis so that the next time a crisis comes, that they feel better equipped to deal with it. And so with that safety plan, there are six steps in the safety plan. And like, so the first step is just looking at what are your warning signs, asking somebody to talk through well, what are the warning signs that crisis might be escalating. And then there's things that, things you can do to keep to yourself safe. So some of those might be just distraction techniques, like some people mindfulness works for them, others it doesn't, going for a run, listening to music, watching a movie, whatever it might be, somebody you can contact. And then the way the safety plan works, it goes through then sort of distraction techniques, um, both internal and external. Mm -hmm. And then maybe people you really, somebody you can contact if you're really concerned about yourself, like an emergency contact. Mm-hmm. That can be a family member, or a friend, or somebody else, as well as maybe then listing your key professionals. Like, if if they all fail, they they don't in terms of continue. You still don't think you're safe. It's writing down, like, would you phone Samaritans? Would you phone your GP? Would you phone some other person or organization or professional? And then the last bit is in the way in which we, um, it's called keeping your environment safe. Is trying to help the person if they are if they thought of a particular method of how they'd end their life, trying to ensure that they that you maximize the distance between that person and their me- and the method. But the key thing is, is having these conversations. And they go, again, a safety plan is normally co-created with a professional. But I think one of the things that's really important to encourage is all of us having these sorts of conversations of how we can keep ourselves safe as well as others safe. But of course, ultimately, if we're really concerned, it's, it's then obviously contacting the emergency services. Um, and I know that is a, it's, these things are scary to do, but again, I've, I've tips in the book on how you can do that. And also, it's just it's just having those conversations in a humane, compassionate sort of um, sort of accepting way. Yeah, definitely. I feel like in kind of trying to prepare myself for this episode recording, I've done some kind of you know research online about how to speak about these topics, and there were a few things that I maybe hadn't come across before but I thought maybe we could discuss a couple of them so there was one thing that I thought was interesting in terms of 
if you have lost someone to suicide, I found something that was talking about it's of course understandable and fine to post tributes about people who've died but try to emphasize that their death was preventable and don't use language like they're in a better place now so I feel like these are just small things that maybe I wouldn't have considered but it's kind of I don't know trying to because even having this conversation it's obviously putting more things out into media but then, yeah, just the, the small kind of ways that we can, as, you know, everyone with social media, for example, the ways that we can talk about suicide in a way that is the most, not even helpful, but just, I don't know. Do you know what I'm trying to say? <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. It's such an important, such an important topic. And so there's a couple of aspects to that. One is dealing with memorials after mm. a suicide death. And, and that is always really challenging and, and it's a fine line because... Family members and friends, of course, want to um, honour their loved one. But we know from the researches, you have to be really careful because if you glamorise suicide and if you talk about suicide as a sort of the solution to problems and like the idea of being a better place, what, what you're doing then is that there's a risk that somebody who is already vulnerable may be more likely then to think of suicide themselves as an option. Mm. And so there are media reporting guidelines that, the organization which I'm president of, the International Association for Suicide Prevention, Samaritans, the National U Union of Journalists all have on talking about suicide in the media. And it's about safe reporting. It's not about censorship. And it's the same applies to social media. Yeah. So basically talk about suicide, highlighting that suicide shouldn't be the, I mean, for all, we should live in a world in which suicide is not the option, that there should be a solution, we hope, to somebody's pain. And so what you're trying to highlight is suicide is not caused by a single factor, but many factors. And, that mo and one of the things we know for certain about suicidality is it's not suicidal thoughts are not permanent. Mm. We know they come and go. They wax and wane and, and, and they come up with periods of high intensity. And those moments of high intensity, it can often be difficult to see hope, to see a future. But we know from all the research and all the clinical work is that that those suicidal thoughts do recede. And that, and so when, and when we're talking about suicide prevention in the media, we're trying to convey those messages of hope. And that by reaching out and recognizing that there is support out there and that we need to do more then when we're talking about it in the social media way of highlighting that, that, that there are alternatives to suicide and that mm -hmm. these suicidal thoughts are not permanent. And, and just say one last thing on that is that I've lost track of the number of people I've met over the years who have been acutely suicidal, have thought that their suicidality would never pass and they would never recover. And then many years later, meeting them and they're recovered, living completely fulfilled lives and are, mm -hmm. and are so pleased that they were able to keep themselves safe. For I, don't, I mean, it doesn't mean matter how they were kept safe, really, but they were kept safe, that they didn't end their life. And they're so grateful. So my message to anyone listening to this podcast who is feeling in crisis or vulnerable, please, you are really valued for somebody who values you. The world is a better place with you in it. And that the pain that you're experiencing is not permanent. Suicide is not the solution. And and please hold on and reach out for help. I mean, I would echo that. And this is, it's not, you know, I didn't want to make this a very personal thing, but I will say if it will help anyone, I have experienced suicidal thoughts in my life. I have been in that place before 
And I remember at the time thinking that there was just nothing that would fix it. And I personally know that's not true. And even when, you know, this was years ago for me now, luckily, and even if I've had subsequent depressive episodes, I never again felt that way. So yeah, that was not a very well worded attempt at that, but just as a very human to human thing, if you're listening to this, it's happened to me, I've been there and it doesn't last. And I know that because it didn't and I'm here and I want you to stay. Yeah, and I know, and I think it's that is such a powerful message, and it's even it's even more powerful because it's not scripted in a way. Do you know what I mean? That's what makes it, it is a human experience, and human experiences mm. are not scripted. And but I think what you've just described there is that tunnel vision that people often feel in those acute suicidal crises. You can't see alternatives. You think that things won't be fixable, and 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 that's why, for example, I mentioned a safety plan is so important because in those moments of crisis. Or some people also have like hope boxes, which things uh, like uh, hope boxes may have photographs or memories or or music, which they can turn in those moments of crisis. And I think it's so so important. So I, for one, I'm so appreciative of you of you sharing that, Gemma. I'm sorry you went through it, and but so pleased to hear that obviously things are better for you, and and it's a great story of recovery. Thank you. Yeah. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Every week, my guests and I will be answering your questions, and the first one comes in from Tanya. So Tanya's question is actually about a, a friend of hers who has lost someone to suicide. So... Recently, my best friend lost a friend due to suicide. I really want to help her and maybe just understand what she's going through because I've never lost anyone close to me and I want to help her the best way I can. I know I can't heal her in any way. We're both just teenagers and not medical professionals, but I want to help. I think that's such an important topic, um, Gemma. And one I'm often asked is, how can we support people who are bereaved by suicide? And Mm. the first thing to say, I suppose, is that it doesn't have to be, you don't have to be a, me- a medical professional or a mental health professional to provide support. Everybody's experience of grief and bereavement is unique, but there are some common features. The individual could be experiencing anger, shame, um, regret, guilt, lots of really complicated feelings, especially if you're a young person. As a teenager, our emotions are often really complicated anyway, and we're still trying to make sense of who we are in the world. But my advice is just often be there as a sounding board, be listening. We often talk about active listening. And active listening just simply means just listening to what the person says, maybe reflecting back to them that you've heard them, and then recognize that 
the one certainty about grief is its unpredictability. Mm. So there's periods in which a person could can feel absolutely fine, but then completely overwhelmed, and and it's just going along with that person in their in their pain and their grief. But also, it's really important looking after yourself and looking out for yourself and your own mental health if you are supporting somebody who's been bereaved. And so, also, it's important to reach out. But I think the the, the bit though, also the last bit I'll say that is, um, and relates to the sort of stuff we talked on earlier about saying the wrong thing. And I think again, once if we just treat somebody on a, as a, on a human to human level, we're unlikely to say the wrong thing. So please, yeah, try and. Just be there for people if you can. Perfect. Thank you. So next question, and I wonder what you'll think about this because you and I on a on another podcast, I know I've spoken, you've got strong feelings about social media. But <laughs> Michelle asks, I think suicide has been normalized to a point where a lot of people make fun and jokes around the terms of using, you know, quote unquote, kill you as a phrase when someone on social media doesn't like them. Do you think social media is responsible for people not taking seriously how important suicide is? I think the relationship between social media and mental health is complicated in the first instance, and um, and its relationship with our attitudes towards mental health is complicated. I think on balance, social media has been positive in terms of providing a forum for people to express themselves, hopefully in a safe and supported way. And before I answer directly the question about the attitudes um, to suicide there's lots of evidence out there that people who are vulnerable who are feeling in crisis have got incredible support from others on social media so so when we hear this debate about social media and mental health too often the story has been social media bad and and of course for some people who are vulnerable, if they're experiencing bullying or having negative experiences in exactly the same way as an in-person, face-to-face, that could impact on their, on their mental health, of course. So vulnerable people, absolutely, will it'll have an impact. But if we look at the research, the research on the relationship between social media and mental health, is it, it's a small relationship mm. because all of our mental health are not, is not affected by one single factor. It's multiple factors. So I think what we need to be doing is getting better and smarter at using social media, harnessing the benefits of social media to be an even better place for people, a more, more resilient place or a place where you can feel safe. And I think that's really, really important. Mm-hmm. But to answer the question directly, I mean, I don't know. If, I, I, I wonder whether this sort of similar minimization of mental health was happening when I was a kid, but it was happening not on social media. It was happening elsewhere. Mm-hmm. So I think for me, yeah, we should be trying to promote conversations which do not uh, minimize the impact of mental health. But I think we have to keep these things in perspective that that in social media, it's difficult. You can't, engaging in censorship just doesn't work. So what you need to do is promote communities, social media or social communities in which the norms are, let's talk about this respectfully. And if somebody's joking about mm-hmm. something, that's, we, there is a place for joke and joviality. But as long as it's in the context of recognizing that for so many people, mental health is painful. And sadly, the most devastating outcome is suicide or, or self-harm. Yeah, absolutely. 
Last question is from someone who wanted to remain anonymous, who says, I had a best friend die by suicide in 2020 and still struggle with grief from time to time. I want to know if it's okay of me to feel anger and guilt because of what she did, even though I know it's not a selfish act, but I still feel those emotions. What can we do to save someone from suicide? Because I feel like I really tried. So, I mean, that's such a heartbreaking question. And so to that person, your feelings are completely understandable. And one of the common, like, uh, like the emotions surrounding suicide, it doesn't matter if, it's a fa- if you're a family member or a friend, are complicated and anger can be and guilt and regrets and all these things are all, always in the mix. So, so your feelings are important to acknowledge and validate. So, so, so your, and your response is, is to be expected. So the second bit of that question, though, on what can we do, it's really difficult. And I speak on somebody who's lost two people in my life to suicide, and I'm meant to be this whatever, suicide prevention expert. So I find this a difficult question to answer on one level because individual su- suicides on an individual level are often are difficult to prevent. But my message is if we try and understand suicide better and provide, so that's my, my, my sort of mantra of trying to understand the pain that somebody's experiencing, helping them recognize that there are alternatives. And then on an individual level, each of us can do small things like reaching out to our friends, letting our friends know that you're there for them when when you need them or when they need you, and that and that those small acts can be really, really important in um, interrupting suicidal thoughts so that those suicidal thoughts do not become suicidal acts. But but the stark reality is that not, no, one, no one individual, I can't be held responsible for somebody else's decision to end their life. Mm-hmm. And when I talk about decision, I don't mean they've chosen to end their life because suicide this overwhelming pain, as I've just described, and the person feels that they have no alternative. And also, remember... Sadly, too many people who die by suicide think that they're a burden on their loved ones or their self-esteem is so low that they think that others would be better off if they died. So so that in terms of the guilt that we all will inevitably feel when we lose a loved one to suicide, it's really trying to remember that we can't be held responsible for for their death. And the point that that, um, that person made as well about suicide not being a selfish act. So it's really important to reiterate that. Because in that moment of acute crisis, that tunnel vision, that not being able to see alternatives, not being able to see the devastating impact, or if you did see the impact, feeling that you're doing your loved ones a favor. So please hold on to that. Is it? It's not. It's not your fault. But and then maybe one last thing. Sorry, Gemma. Is as a maybe nice way to sort of end on a sort of message of hope. Is it? First of all, most people who are suicidal will recover, and I, I know that doesn't help the countless people who are bereaved by suicide. But what we all can do is with through these conversations and be reaching out and asking those difficult questions of loved ones around us, we hopefully can save, save more lives. Thank you. I mean, I really appreciate your, you know, grace in answering that question and especially because of your personal experience. I wanted to ask it because it also wasn't the only similar question and what I want to make sure is through this conversation and talking about suicide prevention is I want to make sure that I'm talking in a way that really honours the feelings of people who have lost loved ones to suicide. Now, I think it is important when we think about suicide prevention, we think about the impact of 
these conversations around suicide on those people who have lost loved ones um, because it's so, so difficult. These conversations are helpful. They're helpful to people who are bereaved. Hopefully it provides some hope that although the people who are bereaved by suicide you'll, will never be the same again, but it's a different sort of we life life moves forward. Um, it's not moving on, it's moving forward. And it, you move forward in a way in a different way but hopefully in a way which um, certainly for me, I think it's made me hopefully a more compassionate and sensitive person, I think. I don't know. Um, I'd like to think that. Um, but I'm hoping that, that all of us who've been bereaved, we bring this energy. And, and I know that all the people I've met bereaved by suicide who've lost so many people have started foundations and have been really instrumental in moving government policy on. And that energy and that personal experience is so, so powerful. And so although it's so difficult for us to accept the pain, hopefully there is some, some, some good, some positive that can come out of it. If you want to know about opportunities to send in questions for upcoming guests, then follow us on Instagram or Twitter at goodinfluencegs, or you can email me at goodinfluencepod at gmail.com. Before you go, I've got three things I ask every guest, and that's if listeners want to find out more about what we've been talking about today. Could you please recommend us something to read, something to listen to, and something to watch? Well, maybe if I'm a bit cheeky, so the first recommendation on what to read um, is my book. <laughs> that maybe sounds a wee bit cheeky. Yeah, not not cheeky at all. So it's when it's dark, when it is darkest, why people die by suicide, and what you can do to prevent it. And you can, it's available everywhere. And, and as I, like I said in the, earlier in the podcast, it's me trying to bring together personal and professional so we all have a better understanding, A, of what we can do in terms of understanding it, but then also what we can do in terms of preventing it, uh, preventing suicide. Mm-hmm. And lots of stuff I didn't get a chance to talk about today in terms of prevention and inequalities and early life trauma and all these other things are covered there, as well as myths and so on. And then in terms of what to watch, there's two documentaries I would recommend which are available, I think, on YouTube. One, and I was involved in both of them, and they're really powerful experiences. And one was um, Life After Suicide, which was presented by Angela Samata. And Angela Samata lost her partner to suicide. And it's a BBC documentary in which she travels the country meeting other people who've been bereaved by suicide. And um, it's really, really powerful, really, really powerful. And uh, I'm involved, I was involved in it and actually was BAFTA nominated and it won the, won the Mind Media Award. Oh, wow. And then what to listen, um, listen to, maybe a song which means a lot to me in the context of suicidal bereavement is, is a song called Angel Flying Too Close to the Ground. I think it was originally mm. um, a Willie Nelson song. I, I, I don't know if he wrote it, but he certainly popularized popularized it. But the version I love and really means a lot to me is there's a Beth Rowley version of Angel Flying Too Close to the Ground. And it's just such a powerful, powerful emotional song. So I suppose that would be my listen. Thank you for listening. And as a reminder, if you feel you need support after listening to this conversation, there are resources linked in the notes to the episode. See you next week.